If you will take your Bibles and turn to the book of Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, there in the New Testament. Our text this morning is going to be verses 18 down through chapter 4, verse 1. Colossians 3. So far as we have been making our way through this letter in the New Testament, Paul has shown us so much about the gospel, uh, just how much the gospel does, uh, that the gospel doesn't merely get us to heaven, it fits us for heaven. And that's really what we've been contemplating these last few weeks as we've begun to make our way through the second half of the letter, as Paul now, in light of the gospel, calls us to a faithfulness in the Christian life. And we've seen several examples so far of how that gets fleshed out practically. Well, today in our text, he goes a bit further and gets a bit more into the details of our personal lives, revealing how the gospel shapes and informs even some of our closest of relationships. So I want to begin reading. Actually, I'm going to stop and read verse 17. I'll go back to verse 17 and read our passage in that flow. So let's hear from the word of the Lord this morning, Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 17. Paul writes, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Let's pray together. Lord, as we open this text this morning, would you help us? Would you help us understand its meaning? And would you help us to give it right application for your glory? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here we are, Colossians 3. And as you take first look at this passage, this passage to our modern eyes and modern ears seems immediately repressive. Wives submit, slaves obey. Especially with all of the cultural waters that we swim in today, acknowledging that a text like this in a culture in which we live in today can be quite challenging. Tragic reality is that we do live in a time We do live in an age where women and children have been abused. We've seen example after example of the distorted and abusive male authority that has often been promoted and encouraged even in the local church. We've seen various types, continue to see, various types of systemic oppression and injustice in the world. So any language like this immediately makes us leery. 
You know, you might think that diving into a passage like Colossians 3 is like pouring fuel on a dumpster fire that's already burning. Perhaps you hear these verses and think, this is exactly why we have problems that we have in the culture, in the church, in the home. It's passages like this. Like Paul, this male chauvinist, wants to just continue this patriarchal idea of oppressing people. Well, we come to a passage like this, and certainly there is cultural baggage that unfortunately can shape the way we read a text like this. And so oftentimes the temptation is to come to a passage like this with the cultural baggage on our shoulders and respond in one of two ways. Either one, we discount, discount it and as irrelevant. We go from verse 17 to chapter 4, verse 2. That doesn't apply today. Move on. Or we reinterpret it to fit our cultural moments. To say, well, what Paul really meant was this. And we begin to explain it in terms that was never originally intended by the Holy Spirit or the biblical writer. Well, we're going to do neither of those today. The Bible is not something we simply discount, nor is it something we reinterpret to make it fit what's best for the moment. We take it as God originally intended it, and we do our best to understand it in the flow of thought in which is presented and point the writer is making, and then we seek to understand and make proper application of it. And so that's what we're going to seek to do by God's grace this morning. And I think, let me just say this up front, I think if we pause and we take a deep breath and we give God credit that he is due and give this text a fair hearing, we may very well find that what we think or what it seems that Paul is saying is actually not what he's saying at all. I think we'll find that this is a passage that does not encourage domination or the abuse of power at all, but rather is a call for us all to submit to the lordship of Christ, which is most visibly seen in our day-to-day relationships with each other. We saw from verse 17 that this entire section is really a call for us being saved by the gospel and now shaped by the gospel. It's a call for us to live life in light of the reality of what the gospel has done for us. We get a good summary of that in verse 17, don't we? Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through him. So that is our point. Everything we do, including our most important relationships, ought to be done with the sense and with the aim of honoring the Lord Jesus. The Lordship of Jesus Christ ought to be on display in every aspect of our lives, and including lives in the home. What Paul does here is he gives us three relationships or contexts We could say where the lordship of Christ is to be teased out and fleshed out in a beautiful way, in a beautiful display. And so we're going to walk through these together and we're going to see how that happens. So let's do that. We're going to look at the fact that Jesus is lord of wives and husbands, that Jesus is lord of parents and children, and that Jesus is lord of slaves and masters. And we'll talk more about that when we get there. 
So let's begin, first of all, about Jesus, how Jesus is Lord of both wives and husbands. You know, our eyes, when we read verses 18 and 19, our, our eyes immediately begin to see the instruction that Paul gives. Wives submit, husbands love. And my guess is that we probably don't get past 18, and we barely hear verse 19. And as Paul addresses, his, addresses household relationship, he doesn't just deal. What, what we have to do is we, we need to span out a bit before we get bogged down into the details of what he's saying. He's not just addressing relationships that deal with husbands and wives and children and parents. What he's doing is he is addressing those relationships, but he's adding another person in the midst of those relationships. And that is Jesus. When Jesus is added to the mix of our relationships, he not only brings a new presence, but he brings a new priority. And that's the point of this text. This is important as we seek to understand the roles of wives and husbands. It's, an, it's important that we get that. So far we've seen a central theme in this letter. And that central theme has been our union with Christ. That we have redemption in him. That we are filled in him, that we have been buried with him and raised together with him, that we are rooted and built up in him. And so as Paul begins to exhort and instruct Christians in how to live out their new lives as believers, their new life in Christ, it's not really surprising that this Christ-centered focus is still in view as he begins to give instruction as to how you go about living this way. I mean, look what the text says. It says, wives submit to husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Children, obey your parents, for this pleases the Lord. <clears throat> Slaves are to obey with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord, working heartily for the Lord. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fair, fairly, knowing that you have a master in heaven. Do you see the Christ-centered nature of these instructions? This is not just do these things. It's do these things in light of your relationship and in light of the lordship of Christ over your lives. All of this is to be done in the context of pleasing Jesus. Lordship of Christ should inform and shape everything that we do, including our closest of relationships. And friends, when we begin to understand that, I think it gives us an entirely different perspective, not, no longer bogged down by the cultural waves and pressures that we live in, but we begin to see a sense of what it is Paul is actually saying. So how does the Lordship inform these relationships, beginning with the, with the marriage relationship? Let's look first of all at a wife's relationship to her husband. And here we find that, that word that everybody loves to hate, submit. By the way, I think it's quite convenient that Jeremy left off at verse 17 last week and didn't continue on in the text, but um, appreciate that, brother. We'll continue on now. You know, this is a word that, that often causes a lot of consternation. It, it causes us, uh, you hear that word and your, your immediate response is not one that's positive, is it? But before we get too excited and want to accuse Paul of being a male chauvinist, that sees women as second-class citizens, let's seek to understand what the word means and what he's actually saying. Listen, submission in the Bible is a word that's used in a variety of different relationships. 
Ephesians 5 verse 21, there's mutual submission, Christian to Christian. In Ephesians 5 24, there's the submission of the whole church to Christ. In, or excuse me, in Hebrews 13 verse 17, there is the submission of church members to church leaders. In James chapter 4 verse 7, there is the submission of every Christian to God. 1 Peter 2 verse 13, there is the submission of Christian citizens to its government or magistrates or whoever's leading in, 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 in the society. Not only that, we have the example of Christ himself, don't we, as he submitted himself to the Father. And so listen, you, you hear that word submit, all of us are called to submit in some shape or fashion. All of us are. This is not just a word for those ladies who are married. This is a word that's biblically Christian. It's, it's Christian. It's our Christian responsibility in a variety of different contexts. And so here, Paul, as he's encouraging, living out the lordship of Christ in the context of marriage, he says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Well, what does that mean? A wife's call to submit is simply to willingly put herself in a position that recognizes the leading role the husband has been called to and live in a way that encourages that. It's an inclination where the wife says, I'm happy for you to take the initiative in the family. It's not a complete surrendering of her will, but a willingness to put herself in a position where she can use her gifts and abilities to assist and encourage her husband in fulfilling his gifts and responsibilities in a complementary way so that the blessing of marriage is on display as a picture of Christ in the church. Now, when we talk about that, we always end up having to say more about what this doesn't mean versus what it actually does mean. And so let me do that. Let me say and reinforce what this call for, of submission does not mean. Number one, in no way does this mean or imply inferiority. Galatians 3 verse 28 makes crystal clear that the value and spiritual standing before God between men and women, husbands and wives, is equal. Both created in the image of God, both have the same exact access to God through Christ. Another thing it doesn't mean is that the wife's, that it's, or let me say it this way, it's actually the wife's responsibility to practice this, not the husband's to enforce. This, this idea, the way that this is being written, wives submit, is, is a voluntary call for the wife to, to give herself to the marriage relationship in such a way that encourages the husband to take the initiative. Now, I know what many of you are thinking, well, he's, he's, He's lazy. He's passive. He doesn't take the initiative no matter what I say or do. And I, there, there's so many things. This isn't a sermon on marriage. This is just a, one point. And so there's a lot of things I won't say today that needs to be said at some point to, to bring further clarification to this. But listen, submission is a voluntary act, not something that can ever be demanded by the husband. So husbands, if you go home and you demand your wife to submit, you're in sin not yours to demand. It's the wife's responsibility to voluntarily do this. It's number three, not a call to blind obedience. Submission is not absolute. 
It doesn't say obey. Notice the distinction in the text. Wives submit versus children obey. It's a big difference. Again, the call to submit is to respect and affirm the husband. Listen, wives, you are not your husband's slave. Figured I'd at least get an amen out of that one, ladies. No. (laughs) You're called to encourage and help him lead well. And this is not a verse... Husbands should use as a power grab, as if you're commanded to control your wife, what she wears, what she eats, how she spends her time. This is not what this text is talking about. Wives, this is not a call for you to stay silent. It doesn't mean that you never make decisions in the family. I'm thankful that Many of the decisions we've made, we've made together, and a lot of those decisions have been wisely informed by my own wife. It doesn't mean you never express an opinion, or it doesn't mean that you never confront your husband. It doesn't mean you have to agree on everything. It's simply a call for the wife to subject herself to the husband's care, where you respect him and you help him live out his calling. And another thing that this is not, it's not a call for all women to submit to all men. Not at all. It's not a statement saying that men are natural leaders and women aren't. Not at all. Faithful, godly women leaders. Faithful women who run organizations and have a lot of influence in culture. This is a call in the context of a marriage relationship for there to be, out of the order of creation, this this complementary relationship where the wife is lovingly respecting her husband and the husband is being called to love his wife. And notice this is to be done in a way that's fitting in the Lord. That can mean one of two things. It could mean that it's appropriate of those who are either in the Lord or insofar as the will of the husband aligns with the Lord. So, ladies, if he's calling you to live in a way that's sinful, certainly you should not submit to that. The way that that phrase is there it could go either way, but regardless, you see the point. Either way, it reminds that a wife's submission is shaped by Christ's lordship, not by what's prevalent in the social order, or not what's even practiced or encouraged in legalistic fashion in a local church. And frankly, wives, this is not about your husband. This is about your relationship to the Lord and how you live out the lordship of Christ in that context. Now, we need to keep in mind that this command doesn't exist apart from the responsibility, which I would argue is weightier on the shoulders of the husbands. And that we see in the next point, a husband's relationship to his wife. Notice it says, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Not only was the Greco-Roman world a highly patriarchal culture that didn't value women as equal, it was one that often oppressed them. Now, when you hear Paul say, husbands, love your wife and do not be harsh with them, that, that, does, that falls on our ears, not necessarily as something that's radical. But this was a radical statement for Paul to say that in this particular culture. Marriage in a, Roman, a Greco-Roman world was not about love at all. 
It was about utility. It was kind of the wise thing you do so you can continue the population. Husbands were, were called to have a wife out of necessity, not out of love. And so for Paul to say this, he was actually saying something that was quite radical for his day. You know, we think the call to submit, largely due to an improper understanding of that word, is countercultural. But when in, the, the reality is, is that Paul's words here were quite countercultural, quite revolutionary. Husbands, love your wives. Unheard of in that day and time. A very distinctly Christian, gospel informed action. He's reminding husbands here that your responsibility is to love your wife, not to be harsh with them, not to live in a domineering, authoritative, demeaning way, but to live in a way that is marked by a generous, compassionate, and sacrificial love. As Paul says in Ephesians 5, that you're to love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. This is a call to love that's not tied to some emotional or sexual reality. Love is an act of the will to put her needs before your own and that she then becomes the primary human focus of your care and concern. Listen, husbands, your wife is not to be your trophy. She is to be your treasure. I just ask you men, does she get that sense from you? Does she feel valued? Can your wives say that she... Can your wife say that she truly feels you would do anything for her? Do you listen to her? Do you take into consideration her desires? Do you encourage her in Christ? Do you encourage her in her role as a wife, as a mom if you have children, in her career, in her ministry? Are you there as her chief supporter and encourage her? Do you encourage her in these ways? Does she feel cherished? Do you help her thrive? Brothers, your wife is not yours to control or to use for your own selfish desires. She is there for you to love. And as you do, Jesus is honored. Now I know that some of you here are single and you're thinking, well, I'm checked out right now. But listen, I want you to hear me. One, there may be the day that you get married. And ladies, this is the type of husband you want to look for. Don't, don't, don't settle for something less. Wives, this is the kind of life you're called to live in recognition and affirmation of your husband. And listen, if you're single, you do not have to be married to live a life that's pleasing to the Lord, to live in a way that reflects the Lordship of Christ. If you're a Christian, in a sense you are married, because Jesus is the greater husband, the perfect one, the all-sufficient one. All earthly husbands will let you down, but he will never let you down. So you need to know that your identity and your value and your sense of worth is not found in marriage, it is found in Christ. Be encouraged by that. The book I just recently 
been reading is called Confronting Christianity, and it's dealing with 12 particular questions by Rebecca McLaughlin, a book I highly recommend. I'll be referring more to it in the days and months to come. But she writes a chapter in that book on, she's basically answering questions that people accuse Christianity of, uh, of. And one of the chapters she's dealing with is, isn't Christianity oppressive to women? But this is what she writes. As someone who's married, has children, she also has a PhD, very wise teacher. She says this, in the drama of marriage, the wife's needs come first, and the husband's drive to prioritize himself is to cut down, be cut down with the brutal acts of the gospel. It's a call to pay attention to the character of Christ. If we hear the call to husbands as a mandate to oppress and dominate, we are forgetting that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve, not to lead an army, but to give his life as a ransom. Brothers and sisters, marriage is ultimately intended to point to something beyond ourselves, and namely, Christ's relationship to his church. And metaphors do matter. Parenting metaphors in the Bible, God is sometimes portrayed as father and sometimes as a mother, but in marriage, God is always the husband, and his people is always the wife. And it's to be a beautiful representation of what it is God has called us to be in Christ. So let's remember the lordship of Christ in the context of these marriage relationships. But not only is he lord of wives and husbands, he's lord of parents and children, number two. Children, obey your parents and everything, for this pleases the Lord. I love verses that I don't have to spend a lot of time explaining, especially after the previous two. So here Paul presses further into the home as he addresses the parent-child relationship. And let's just think about these for a moment. First of all, children to parents. So, all right, children, you've got to track with me here for a minute. All right? The Bible talks about how you as a child are called to obey your parents. And I know you've been told that. You're supposed to obey, right? Well, this is true. God has called us to do that as children, right? And so it's in the Ten Commandments so that we're to honor our father and our mother. And how you respond to your parents or your guardians is a reflection of how much you love God. You want to obey because it's pleasing to him. Paul said in 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 and 2, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. Ungrateful, unholy, and he goes on and on. Notice, the, notice what he says here. He says, children, obey your parents in some things. No, that's not what he says, is it? Let's go back and look at that again. Look, if, you're, if you're a child and you have a, your Bible open, look at verse 20. Children, obey your parents in everything. And all the parents said? Amen. Amen. Everything. All right, I'm going to get the parents in a minute, kids. Now, one of the ways that children honor the Lord is by obeying their parents in everything. And I want you to look at the reason. Now, kids, how many times have you heard mom and dad say this? I'm about to get in trouble. They'll say, 
you need to clean your room, and you're like, why? And they say this, because I said so. Children, let me just tell you, that's a bad reason. Sort of. Let me give you a biblical reason. All right, look at the Bible. Children, obey your parents in everything. Why? For this pleases the Lord. Now, next time your mom or your dad ask you to do something and you don't do it, and you say, or you don't want to do it, and you're like, why? And they say, because I said so. I don't recommend you say to them, well, pastor said. But I think what you need to know is you don't even have to ask the question why. Now you know why. Obeying your parents pleases the Lord. So parents, there you go. They're never going to have to ask you again, why should I have to do this? Because they're going to know, based upon Ephesians chapter, or excuse me, Colossians chapter 3, verse 20, that their obedience pleases the Lord, right? That's exactly what we want to do in our parenting. We want to encourage our children to obey, not because we said so, but ultimately because it pleases the Lord. We want to drive them to Christ. We want the lordship of Jesus to be on display in a parent-child relationship so that children know as they grow and are raised up in the fear and admonition of the Lord that it's the Lord that they're to please. Yes, they need to please us. So much more than that, they need to please Jesus. That's what we want to teach them. So kids, next time your parents ask you to do something and you don't want to do it, you're like, why do I have to do it? There you go. It pleases Jesus. It pleases him. Parents to children. It says fathers, but it can also be translated parents as it is in Hebrews 11, verse 23. So I think this is applicable to not just fathers, but fathers and mothers. We're told here, fathers or parents, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. I know many times you read that and you're thinking, man, I have done that so many times. You have a responsibility, parents, to not provoke, to not make your children resentful or bitter. Notice the reason he gives for that. Lest they become discouraged. Or another way to translate that is, so they do not lose heart. You can see it, right? When you've, when you've, provoked or you've you've failed in this way you can see their countenance just drop parents you want to love and parent your children in a way that builds them up not belittles them you don't want to cause them to grow discouraged you want to raise them up and build them up in christ the family is a context where these daily struggles are to be opportunities to build to grow to shape us into people who want to honor and please the lord And parents, you have a responsibility to steward this. Listen, I can just say it this way. Do not make your children's obedience about you. Do not make your children's obedience about your demands, about your expectations, about your desires, about your needs and wants. Make your children's obedience about Jesus. Drive them to Christ in all that you do. And when you do, you will, not, you will not discourage them. But then there's the call, number three. Not only do we see the lordship of Jesus in marriage and parenting and parent-child relationships, but we see now Jesus is lord of slaves and masters. Now, when you come to verse 22, this verse makes us a bit uncomfortable. At least it should. Because we know in our day and time, in our culture, we, we think, well, we don't, 
legally have slaves today. We've rightly passed laws that condemn and ban it in every sense. And it's unthinkable to us today how such an action could have not only been permitted, but legal. And boy, I could go on and on how churches were even complicit in this kind of rampant sin. Temptation, then, is to come to verse 22 and approach this text and read our current situation into it and draw a conclusion, well, this is not relevant anymore. And so what we do is we say, okay, slaves and masters don't exist, but employer-employee relationships exist, and so I'll apply it there. The problem is, that's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about slaves and masters. And if you don't understand that, you're going to miss the radical thing that he's saying here. Now, I think that secondarily, there's some secondary application and principles you can certainly take out of this to fit multiple variety of contexts where you have uh, a superior, someone that's in charge of someone else, or an employer, an employee relationship. But that's not the main point. That's not the primary application of this verse. There's not a one-to-one correlation between slaves and masters and employee-employee relationships. Though I think you can still take some principles from it, and we will in just a moment. Now, a few points aside, as we think about this language, number one, we need to note that, that the Bible in no way ever condones slavery. What it's doing is simply recognizing its existence in this culture and speaking into that context. Just because the Bible speaks into a context doesn't mean it advocates or it condones a particular practice. In fact, the Bible devotes significant attention to the oppressive nature of forced slavery and encourages those that can get out of it to do so. We could go on and on about that, but let's just see what Paul says here. Number one, the instruction from, for slaves to masters. I want you to go back. and We can't read these verses without chapter 3, verse 11 ringing in our ears. Go back to verse 11. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. Paul has already leveled the playing ground, saying, masters, slaves. And again, slavery in the New Testament practice was much different in many ways to the the chattel slavery that, that our own nation endured and unfortunately has as part of our history. There was still a lot of oppression, still a lot of things that, that weren't right. Slaves didn't have rights. They, they couldn't inherit things. They were certainly in many ways considered merely property. But another thing that makes it a little different is that in many cases, slavery was also in some, time, at some, in some places, in some contexts, voluntary. And so it's it a little different. But what we need to do is we need to, to think about what he's saying here to slaves and masters with verse 11 ringing in our ears that, listen, in Christ they are equal. It's already said that. It's already demonstrated our equal standing as Christians, no matter our status culturally. And so Paul's encouraging slaves here to serve and to serve well, not for their master's sake, but for the Lord's sake. They serve not because they're subhuman, they serve because they're sons and daughters of the king. Paul gives their work eternal significance. And is telling them that they are seen and they are valued. And what they do matters. Even if it's in an unjust context. 
So again, what Paul is saying here is quite countercultural. He's actually saying they're valued. They're not merely property. They're made in the image of God. They have the same standing as their masters do if they are a Christian. And in many cases in the church, in the local church in this day, you would have masters and slaves that were members of the same church. Sometimes slaves even holding leadership positions in that church. So again, a very different context. He addresses them directly here. A lot of times in this day and time, you couldn't address a slave directly. You'd have to go through their, their master. Paul's talking to them outright. He points to their eternal inheritance. They are co-heirs with Christ. They have an eternal inheritance. And he sees them for who they are in Christ. So again, I said earlier, there, there's no one-to-one correspondence here between slaves and masters, but you can easily see with what Paul says here how there's some principles that can be applied in a variety of different contexts. Notice he says, Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart fearing the Lord. It's no different than what we've already seen in verse 17, right? Everything you do, whatever you do, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to him. And thanks to God the Father through him. So again, obey, work, not by way of eye service as people pleasers. And so in the work that we do today, certainly that's relevant, isn't it? We should do the things that we've been called to do, not in an order to please someone, but to please Jesus. Do what we do heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. We're serving Christ. We need to remember that even when we are being oppressed or experiencing injustices in the world, the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. There is no partiality. So again, just a reminder that we should serve and work with excellence and not out of laziness and that we should work as unto the Lord. We're to do what we're told. But there's a word not only from slaves to masters but, uh, of instruction, but from masters to slaves. Notice Paul turns and addresses masters here. He says in verse 1 of chapter 4, Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly. In any sense of slavery throughout human history, that's not like what slavery's for. So Paul, he's stripping back, saying, no, you've got to treat them justly and fairly. It's a godly way that you, that you respond to them. Knowing, notice what he says, by the way, knowing that you have a master in heaven. They can just treat slaves however they wanted, but they should be just. They weren't to be oppressive. Again, they were to be seen as equals in the sight of God. So again, you you really see, if you keep to the original intent of this text, you see just how radical and and really how provocative Paul is being here. He's telling masters that they themselves are slaves, and he's telling slaves that they are fellow citizens in the kingdom of God. The point being is that the lordship of Christ destroys any sense of domination or oppression. Smashes the idea that we can live in injustice in the world. So when we think about all this that that Paul says here, you you just see in what's often called the household code. Husbands and wives, children and parents and slaves and masters often were considered family in the same confines as family. He's saying, listen, the lordship of Jesus is to be on display in all of these relationships. 
Paul wrote these words in a day when oppression of women, children, and slaves was a cultural norm. And he says the gospel changes that. These verses are not repressive. These were words that were revolutionary in what they're saying. In fact, they were words that would empower women, empower children, empower slaves to be on equal standing, on equal footing with their identity of who they are in Christ before God. Paul was subverting the culture by pointing to the lordship of Jesus, which we all come under as Christians. And his point is that no matter the role or the place we are in society, in the home, there is always opportunity to honor Jesus. Because he is Lord. And friends, when the world watches us live out these commands in our daily lives, we need to be reminded that it's an opportunity for us to be part of displaying something that's beyond us. Indeed, we honor Christ. We honor Christ as Lord in the home. We are serving him as a faithful witness and testimony when we live in this way. Because he is the one who deserves all glory and all praise. So friends, let's be faithful servants of our king, knowing that we have one Lord, that we have one master, and that's to be on display in all that we do, including the closest of relationships that we have, humanly speaking. So may God in his grace give us help to do that for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this reminder, and we thank you for this word. We thank you, Father, for speaking into the context that we are often so familiar with. Frankly, Lord, these contexts that we live in, whether it's husband-wife relationships, parent-child relationships, other cultural relationships that we have, Lord, they become so routine and so normal that we lose sight of what we've been called to be and do. And sometimes, Lord, we get so caught up with the particulars of what we are called to do that we forget the purpose of it. And that has to do everything that we're called to do in a way that's pleasing to you. God, would you forgive us where we have failed, where we have neglected, where we have fallen short? And God, would you raise up faithful believers in this congregation that would seek to live out the calls and the commands that you've given us in a way that understands and values the Lordship of Christ? and all that you've called us to be and do. Lord, thank you for speaking into our hearts and lives today. Would you change us by your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.